Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. Thank you so much for joining us. In this episode, could Vladimir Putin use nukes to counter losses in Ukraine? The nation's job rate and the rate of growth slows. So who wins and who loses? President Biden pardons stoners, oops, marijuana users caught by the feds. And two abortion stories, one, a judge in Arizona presses pause on a new total ban, and Herschel Walker's ex says he urged her to get an abortion not once, but twice. He denies it, but... So we start with the war in Ukraine. Most know Russia has suffered a series of setbacks in their effort to conquer the country. Last week, the rhetoric has become even more heated. First, Putin vowed to use, quote, all forces and means, end quote, to hold on to territory seized in the war. Then President Biden upped the ante by asserting, again, quoting here, I don't think there's any such thing as the ability to easily use a tactical nuclear weapon and not end up with Armageddon, end quote. He also compared the current situation to the Cuban Missile Crisis back in 1962. This has created an air of menace both in Washington and in Moscow. Biden went a lot further than most in his administration have gone thus far. Since his statement, numbers of officials in the Defense Department and elsewhere have taken great pains to say they don't think Putin would go that far. Perhaps they're right. It's possible that the Russian leader is losing his grip on power as dissatisfaction even among his hardline allies grows. Some think he may grow desperate, maybe even enough to use tactical nukes. He doubtless knows that being the first country to use a nuclear weapon since 1945 would cause most of the world, including trading partners India and China, to cut him off and run for the hills. It's clearly a risk-reward situation. He's got to ask himself a few questions. Would Ukraine immediately surrender if they were nuked? Would the West commute troops on the ground if he dropped the bomb? We've seen a fair amount of speculation in Western media about Putin's health, both physical and mental. There's also speculation about his, what his next move will be. This is all the more unpredictable as the Kirsch Bridge, a key crossing between Crimea and Russia, has been crippled by a huge blast over the weekend. And the Russians appear to have responded by dropping bombs and missiles over Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine. No one has claimed responsibility for the bridge destruction yet, but it's a body blow to the already beleaguered Russian military. There are, despite all that's happened recently, a few constants. One, nobody in Western media has the slightest idea how Putin's mind works. And anything you see or hear that purports to do so is rank speculation. Few people in Western government know either. See, so you got the media saying one thing, and you've got the government saying one thing, and neither one of them is certain that they're right. You know, they talk about, oh, we've got intelligence that says this, or we've got this, this got that. They don't really know, and they ought to be a little bit more down front about that. How Putin will react in the medium term to the series of setbacks his country has experienced is anybody's guess. He's fired several military commanders, but unless he can stabilize the situation on the ground, 
he risks getting whipsawed between hardliners and those who just want the war to end, plain and simple. Up next, jobs growth is slowing, but it's still decent. Why are investors so jittery? And when will the bottom fall out, if at all? This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Financial investors are a strange lot. When jobs numbers come out, as they did last week, and they're not as bad as people thought they might be, investors get jittery, and the stock market takes a beating. I've always wondered why financial markets don't like news that's good for working people. I know those markets are worried about inflation. Everybody's worried about inflation. One would think the recent rate hikes by the Federal Reserve could, with strong jobs numbers, mean they're keeping the recession that everybody's predicting is coming at bay. And yet, higher wages and more people employed is somehow a bad thing. I understand full well that runaway inflation can tip the nation into recession. I also know that inflation is a problem in Europe, China, and many other regions of the globe. Even though wages are not rising as quickly as inflation, the Fed thinks they may have to raise rates and raise rates even further to cool the economy. Because as we all know, employers will raise prices to the consumer if they have to pay more for labor. But wait a minute. If wages rise, don't workers then go out and spend more money? That seems to be a kind of axiom. You know, people with a lot of money, when wages rise or when they get more money, may tend to invest it or whatever. But when regular working folks, you know, like you and, well, not so much me, but you, end up getting higher pay packets, it often goes directly into spending on the part of the consumer. Or is that not a factor in the market's calculations? To be brutally frank, that's my problem with the way markets work. It seems they thrive on bad news for workers while tanking when things are good. The fact is, nobody likes inflation with the uncertainty it brings. No worker wants to lose his or her job. Nobody wants to pay higher prices that inflation invariably brings. Still, there's a political element to all this, and we need to be clear about that political element. The better the jobs picture and the more wages rise, the more the party in power, in this case the Democrats, can tout their stewardship of the economy. In the case of Republicans, runaway inflation leads them to say that Biden doesn't know what he's doing. With the midterms coming up in short order, the political side of economic news takes on added, and I do mean added, significance. There are certain facts that flow from the jobs report. Inflation is still stubbornly high. Hiring is slowing down slightly. And wage increases are also starting to come back down to earth. Now, there's a ripple effect with those wage increases slacking a little bit. People may not be so quick to leave one job, or people may not be so quick to attempt to adjust their work-life balance. Both of things 
Both of those things happened as a result of the pandemic. People started looking at working from home and saying, gee, why can't I do that two, three, four days a week? Now, if it risks their work, they have to rethink a lot of that. But it's also true that the United States has not been hit as hard as other Western nations, but most Americans don't care how others are doing. In less than a month, voters will deliver their verdict. And now to President Joe Biden. Last week, he pardoned more than 6,000 people convicted of marijuana possession under federal law. To hear and read some in the right-wing media, you'd think he pardoned John Dillinger, Al Capone, and Charles Manson. One headline screamed, Biden pardons marijuana dealers, which, of course, is not true. No one convicted of selling or distributing weed will be eligible for the pardons. People convicted of state and or local charges will also not be pardoned. But what's a little accuracy when you can feed red meat to your base? Normally, I don't like to get into comparisons between politicians. It is a zero-sum game. Yet, if you compare the miscreants Biden's predecessor pardoned, it's interesting to wonder about the former guy's logic, not Biden's. Let's see now. There's Roger Stone, Steve Bannon, Michael Flynn, Dinesh D'Souza, boxer Jack Johnson, which I think was a good thing, and strangely, rappers Lil Wayne and Kodak Black. It goes without saying that the 6,500 people Biden pardoned aren't famous. They do, however, represent a sea change in American attitudes towards marijuana. I'm old enough to remember when most people believe the portrayal of weed users in the 1930s film Reefer Madness was standard, was what most people thought would happen if you smoke weed. And if you've ever seen the movie, you know what that plot line, in fact, is. By the end of the 1960s, by the way, it was still associated with a counterculture many Americans found problematic. Now, fast forward more than a half century, and 37 states have legalized medical marijuana, and 19 have legalized it for adult use. The days when a person could get five years for possession like they used to do in Texas are a distant memory. President Biden also urged states to follow his lead. States are, after all, where the vast majority of people convicted for possession have records or are even at this late date locked up. It would be nice if states followed his lead. Finally, two abortion stories, one from Arizona, the other from the Georgia campaign trail. Both are interesting because they happen in the wake of the gunning of Roe v. Wade. This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Two stories on abortion caught my eye last week. First, the Arizona Appeals Court pressed pause on enforcement of a near total ban on abortion in that state. A lower court had reinstated an older law 
that only allowed abortion if the mother's life was in danger. By the way, that older law was enacted in 1864. That's right, 1864. This is precisely how far back anti-abortionists want to take the country. It's the reason the religious right embraced a serial philanderer and grifter like Donald Trump. They wanted a Supreme Court that would kill Roe v. Wade, and that's precisely what they got. In Arizona's case, they only got a stay. That's because the appellate panel took into account newer laws that allowed more leeway than the law that was passed in 1862. This kind of confusion is becoming more and more frequent as states try to figure out how to bludgeon a woman's right to choose. Arizona is only one state, and one that put the brakes on what's obviously a draconian, out-of-date law. There are other fronts where the battle over abortion rights is giving anti-abortionists fits. That happens to be about the abortion pill. This is probably going to be the most contentious part of the gutting of Roe v. Wade. Red state legislatures and governors are tearing their hair out trying to stop women in their states from accessing the pill, which is used in about half the abortions in the country. Some groups are actually promoting prison time for people who share information about the pill. That's unlikely to happen, I think, but then I never thought the right to control a woman's body would be trashed either. Enforcing a ban on information smacks of fascism, but it doesn't look like these advocates, anti-abortion advocates, care one bit about that. Their end game is and has always been a total ban on abortion, even in cases of rape or incest. And not just locally, they want a nationwide ban. Just ask Lindsey Graham, who's been promoting this garbage ever since the high court ruling. The pro-choice movement is going to have to toughen up and fight for a woman's right to choose for the long haul. And this is something that I think they could possibly, and I'm talking about pro-choice people, they can take a lesson from the anti-abortionists. The anti-abortionists have been fighting for five decades, since the year Roe v. Wade was decided to try and erode it, to try and nibble at the edges of it, and finally, to get rid of it. And that, folks, is one of the huge reasons. Because, face it, you sit back and you think to yourself, why would a bunch of conservative Christians, the religious right, end up supporting Donald Trump? Donald Trump, who has been married three times. Donald Trump, who has allegedly philandered, groped, uh, and given all kinds of grief to women, why would the religious right, an allegedly pious institution, pious, you understand, why would they support a guy like Donald Trump? For one reason, ladies and gentlemen, and that is to get rid of Roe v. Wade by way of appointments to the Supreme Court. And Trump, on that level, for them, did his job. Right now, they may not need him quite as much as they used to. But the issue 
is not with the anti-abortionists. It's with the people who are pro-choice. How do they respond to this? Now, the abortion pill is something that is going to be a huge bone of contention because it implies that anti-abortionists, because remember, this stuff comes in the mail. It comes in the mail. So how are they going to stop an envelope coming to someone's house that contains the abortion pill? Unless they add a layer of bureaucracy in the Postal Service that scans packages to find out whether or not that stuff is actually contained in a package. It actually sort of harkens to a very frightening conclusion. But you know they're willing to do that too, to deny a woman's right to choose. And that's why pro-choice people are going to have to get tough and are going to have to go into a situation for a long haul. It is barbaric enough that many of these states would ban abortion even in the case of rape, even in the case of incense. And in some cases, some draconian outlier type cases, even when the woman's life is in danger. There are certain states that want to ban abortion, period. That's right, period. And women are going to have to, pro-choice women that is, and men who support a woman's right to choose, are going to have to realize who their opposition is, how long they've been fighting to bring us where we are today, and then create a counter-narrative and a counter-offensive. Down in Georgia, football legend and Senate candidate Herschel Walker is facing a world of hurt after the Daily Beast printed a story that said he encouraged a woman to have an abortion back in 2009. Walker's problem is, of course, that he is stridently anti-choice, not even in the case of rape or incest. That's the amazing thing about Herschel Walker. The troubling thing about Herschel Walker. The scary thing about Herschel Walker. And he could, in fact, end up winning a Senate seat, which could have the effect of tilting the Senate balance, which is now ever so slightly in favor of Democrats, back to Republican. Now, not only did his ex say that they consensually decided to abort a child, and that at the time, Herschel Walker seemed to have no problem with it. But then she said in 2011, two years after the first abortion, Herschel Walker urged her to have a second abortion, which she refused to do. She bore that child, who's now about 10 years old, and she says that Herschel Walker has had no real impact in that child's life except to send money. And you see, this is what Herschel Walker has long decried inside the black community. Inside communities generally, but specifically inside the black community. And now his son Christian, who was one of his biggest boosters, has turned on him. And said, you know, this is too much. See, because I think Christian was lied to about a lot of these situations. And his father is now reaping what he sowed earlier. 
And the fact of the matter is, it could tilt the Senate case to Reverend Raphael Warnock, who's the incumbent, or it could somehow, improbably, elicit a groundswell of sympathy for Herschel Walker. Because remember something, this is a guy who said he didn't even know the woman who made these allegations. He called her, and I'm quoting here, some alleged woman. Maybe that says it all. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.